Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at the Bulwark, and I am joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Damon Linker of The Week, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Our special guest this week is Noah Smith, who writes a substack under the headline, No Opinion. And we are especially delighted to have Noah back because he was uh, our guest about five or six months ago, and we discussed the topic that we're going to be discussing again, namely the inflation monster, which has only gotten worse. So while the U.S. is currently enjoying the highest job growth that we have seen in almost four decades, there is bad news, namely that inflation is skimming all of the gains that people have made in wages, and then some. So the latest numbers come out show inflation running at 8.5%, while nominal wages grew at only 5.6%. And so we've had an actual decline in inflation-adjusted wages over the past year. No, the last time we discussed this with you, you mentioned that um, you felt it was very important that the Fed send the correct signals. You were concerned about inflation expectations creeping into the economy, and you felt that if the Fed did its job, namely you know, signaling that it was going to wrestle inflation to the ground by raising interest rates sufficiently, that this would nip in the bud inflation expectations, and, and therefore we wouldn't be in for a serious recession. How are you looking at it now? Well, so I think the most important thing to understand is that the sources of inflation have changed, and that a few months ago, what we saw was high core inflation which is stuff like, you know, cars and houses and TVs and stuff, um, durable goods that, you know, people can wait to buy or, or whatever. And so we saw significant inflation there. That's the kind of inflation that the Fed typically responds to and the Fed did respond to it. And if you look, core inflation actually did decelerate a bit in the last data release. So that's a good sign. It means that the basic sources of inflation that we had in 2021 are now ebbing. And there were two sources. The biggest source was the COVID relief bill, the stimulus spending that we did, you know, including Fed policy and other things that weren't on the uh, on the federal budget. But that was the biggest thing. And that's all over. You know, the Fed is tightening and, uh, you know, we stopped that stimulus spending. And so that driver is gone. And the second driver, of course, was supply chain problems. Those are starting to work themselves out. So the Fed really did its job and inflation core inflation was and is beginning to subside. The problem is then you had the Ukraine war. Russia invaded Ukraine that disrupted uh, food. And then we put a big package of sanctions on Russia and that disrupted, you know, oil and gas and also more food. And so now what we're having is inflation in energy and food. Those are traditionally not things the Fed responds to. They're not in core inflation because they tend to be very volatile. So the fluctuations cancel out. That may not be true this time. So we're getting a different kind of inflation than we did before. And that's a problem. But fortunately, if you look at something called the five-year, five-year forward expectation rate for inflation, that's the expectation from inflation from 2027 to 2032. 
then you'll see that it's still. Wait, what? What are you talking about? What is that? I've never heard of it. Is it oh, who, whose yeah. expectations are these? Tell us. This, this is a market <laughs> expectation. So you can buy forward contracts, basically for inflation-adjusted bonds. Okay. And so you can construct from the price of inflation index bonds relative to non-inflation index bonds, you can get what the market is betting on in terms of future inflation. So you can see what investors, professional investors, are betting that inflation will be, right? And that's not always a, a perfect guide to what inflation will actually be, but it's a good guide to what market participants think inflation is going to be. So that's what tells us about those expectations getting out of control, which is the thing I talked about that I was scared of on the last podcast. And so if you look now you'll see that they're still not really out of control. They still think that inflation is going to be fairly temporary and uh, contained. You know, it, it, it's just going to take a little while. And the, and the war has lengthened the time period that it's going to take to contain that. Okay. Bill Galston, the sources of inflation that Noah talked about, food and energy, happen to be the ones that consumers are most sensitive to. Um, food, everybody has to eat, go to the supermarket and the prices are up and you have to fill your tank with gas, or at least for most people, it's not optional. So those rising prices are politically very damaging. You've written about this. We all have, I guess. Now, I heard one veteran Democratic strategist when he was asked what Biden should do about this. He said, blame someone else. And uh, arguably, this is what the administration has been doing. They've been blaming Putin. How do you think that's going? Well, it's probably the best of a very sorry litter of picks. (laughs) There is some evidence that people do believe that. After all, it's partly true. Certainly, Mm -hmm. if you look at the interruption of wheat supplies, both from Russia and from Ukraine, uh, that is putting upward pressure on a commodity that enters into the production and the prices of many other commodities. And this would not have happened, but for Putin. I think the other piece of blame someone else is attacks on corporate greed, which I think have considerably less merit. At the end of the day, I'm afraid, at best, a policy of deflection can only be partly effective. The administration, I'm afraid, is going to get blamed both for things that it is responsible for and things that it's not responsible for. And I doubt very much that voters are going to be able to see the difference or that they very much care. One of the consequences of the kinds of presidencies that we've had since 1933 is that presidents are held responsible for the condition of the economy, which was not always the case. And unless there is a miraculous improvement quite soon, I think that Biden and the Democrats are likely to bear the brunt of public blame in November. If Noah is right, uh, November of 2024 may look very different. And speaking as a Democrat, I certainly hope he's right. So, Damon, I'm inclined to think also that the American Rescue Plan that was passed by the Biden administration was too big. And also, you know, it just spent a huge amount of money all at once, sort of dumping a huge amount of money into the economy instead of 
funding programs that would extend on into the future. And so, you know, it's not just that the government was spending money, it was how the money was spent that I would think was not so advisable in terms of inflation risk. But, you know, we do have to look abroad too, don't we? And uh, in Europe and Great Britain, inflation isn't quite as high as it is here, but it's just about a point less. And so the Wall Street Journal editorial board, you know, is hopping mad at Biden and blaming it all on him. But it is a global phenomenon, right? Oh, yes, of course. I did some sniping on Twitter this week when uh, the new consumer price index data was released and and some more uh, kind of uh, conservative tweeters were kind of having a field day. Oh, thanks, federal government. Uh, You know, great. You know, your spending has led us here. And, you know, that is a very American-centric way of looking at it. I mean, it is, I don't doubt that the spending, especially in the final spending bill that passed in March of last year after Biden became president, which followed on the heels of a previous one only three or four months earlier, and then other spending before that, was probably too much, too soon and should have been uh, delayed until we saw if we really needed it later. And in fact, we probably would have seen we did not need it. So that contributed to it. And as you know, also the supply chain problems we had because of the pandemic shutting things down and then demand for consumer products surging, uh, both because people weren't spending on other things like services, but uh, but also because of the money that was coming from Washington. But there were versions of such supports passed in countries around the world. But then you also had, as others have mentioned, you had the war now, which is adding to pressures in the present or the near past. And, you know, no one has mentioned yet the fact that China is now running an experiment to see if it really can have a zero COVID policy by doing Doing, among other things, completely locking down a city of 26 million people, making people stay in their apartments, leaving hundreds of container ships docked off the coast of China uh, near Shanghai, waiting to do business, and they can't. So, you know, that also is contributing to problems. And, and you know, at least in the short to medium term, I suspect you're going to continue to keep prices high, uh, even apart from any bigger structural uh, problems that are driving it simply because the, the supply chain problem is going to continue for a lot of products that flow through there. Shanghai is among the very highest uh, traffic trade ports in the world. So to the extent that the Chinese are, uh, for kind of dubious epidemiological reasons, trying to completely shut down trade from there, uh, that is going to reverberate around the world as well. So it's, you know, uh, people like to use the term overdetermined in doing analysis, and it often works because it's a complicated world and there are often many causes of both good and bad things. Well, this is definitely a case where inflation globally is very much overdetermined at the moment. So getting out of it, I don't know. I mean, uh, Noah could probably speak to this with far more authority than I could, but 
you know, the classic, at least over the last few decades, uh, the classic theory is you got to drive the economy into recession through raising interest rates sharply, and then you kind of reset everything and we come out of it with lower inflation. Maybe that will end up having to happen, or maybe it just will happen because people will stop spending because things are costing too much. Inflation is just one of those problems that uh, if you're in office when it happens, you just spend your days cursing the world. Because <laughs> there's like, there's very few clear paths forward and none of them involve anything less than a lot of pain. So, yeah. so uh, that's where we are, I think. It's, and it, it, it can be a presidency killer. Yeah. Uh, as we've seen many times in our history. Uh, by the way, Damon, have you seen the videos coming out of Shanghai of people screaming out of their apartment windows? Oh, oh yeah. It's the most I mean, dystopian thing you've ever seen. Oh, my uh, God. You know, these very, it's very Chinese, like, you know, apartment blocks that you'll see in this country and major cities that go on maybe like a dozen buildings. This is like multiple dozen because the population is so enormous and it's very densely packed in and you just see almost every light on in a series of high-rise skyscrapers with apartments and just the shrieks of hundreds or thousands of people screaming their apartments just out of frustration i presume uh and then another video that was circulating of a of a drone from the chinese government of hovering outside saying things like stop longing for freedom just accept your imprisonment <laughs> <laughs> like like you, you couldn't come up with better anti-PRC propaganda. It, it, it's really remarkable. It is amazing. Linda, I'm going to come to you. I hope that people will just save those videos and pull them out the next time someone, and it happens all the time, uh, some, you know, political leader or pundit or whatever will say, you know, I just wish we could be China for a day. Or there was a lot of talk at the beginning of this pandemic that one of the lessons was going to be that authoritarian countries were going to prove that they were better at coping with emergencies than democracies. And, you know, what's happening in China is just horrific. I mean, they when they say lockdown, I mean, they don't mean that it's advised that you that you stay in your apartment they mean you can't leave your apartment even if your kid has epilepsy and you need to go to the pharmacy and get the medicine or or you know even if you have an elderly relative who's dying i mean there's you can't leave your apartment and people ha don't have food i mean it truly is dystopian as as damon said right and i mean say anything you want about that and then i i want to ask you also about about inflation because you know the president really does seem to be flailing i mean he he's doing a lot of stuff that's purely window dressing like you know always oh, going to let them sell gas with ethanol in it over the summer, and he's releasing oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which presidents do all the time. I know he's not the first, he won't be the last, but it has a trivial impact, uh, if any. Um, and, and he's not doing the things that he could do, right? That's right. Well, let me just say a word about uh, Shanghai. So my husband and I went to China in 2018. That's the only time I've been there. And we both marveled at the city of Shanghai. It was just the most fabulous city either of us had ever seen. Uh, there were these sort of futuristic buildings. And every night there were light shows displayed on the buildings. And it was just uh, magnificent. And I remember saying to Chris, 
gee, why can't we do cities like this? You know, what is it? What What's happened to the United States? We're sort of behind at times. Uh, but obviously, all that uh, glitters is not gold. And the city of Shanghai, what we've been hearing, these screams, some of them apparently are screams of people who are in hunger. So obviously, that's a very regrettable uh, thing that is going on there. But I did want to say a word about inflation. And Mona, one of the things that no one's talked about in terms of what's going on with inflation is the role that labor plays in inflation. I mean, clearly, uh, the Fed pumped a bunch of money into the system. There were lots of checks that went out to people. People uh, had money in their bank accounts and were spending it, and they were chasing too few goods and too few services because there were not people out there actually working to produce them, uh, to transport the goods, uh, or to perform the services. We have a huge labor crisis uh, in this country right now with more than 11 million jobs going unfilled. And last year alone, 47 million people quit their jobs, including one out of every four Hispanics and Asians quit their jobs. Uh, Most of them got new jobs um, and they got better paying jobs. Well, all of that plays into inflation. And one of the things that I think no one wants to talk about is that we have benefited over the course of the last 20 years by having influxes of new labor coming into the market, some of it legal immigrants, some of it people who are undocumented. But they have filled jobs that our economy needs that have helped make us a more productive society. And that, of course, began to slow drastically during the Trump years. And then with the virtual shutdown of illegal immigration into the United States, uh, when Title 42 was invoked uh, by uh, the Trump administration, but carried on by President Biden, it meant that even Asylum seekers who in past years would have been allowed into the country, uh, they could have applied to work within the first year, and while their cases were being adjudicated, all of that stopped. And so we we have Linda, this huge I'm gonna, shortage. I'm going to just ask you to explain what Title 42 is. Sure. Title 42 is a provision in the health code that gives the president uh great power to basically stop immigration when there is a an emergency, and in this case, a health emergency. And so because of COVID, uh, it wasn't unreasonable, I think, uh, for President Trump to invoke Title 42. I mean, at the time that it was invoked, we had no vaccines, we had no cures or treatments for COVID. And so he invoked it, but it has stayed on past the time when uh, vaccines are widely available, when we have more treatments. And basically, it has been used as uh, a way to stop immigration more than as a health tool. And the Center for Disease Control uh, has announced that they're going to be lifting the restrictions in May, although there are bills being talked about in Congress, including bipartisan bills, uh, to try to stop them from doing that. And so it's not 100% clear that that's going to happen. But when it does happen, uh, what we are going to see is a flood of people coming into the United States. And, you know, people wring their hands about that. They think, oh, my heavens, this is a terrible thing. No, not really. Uh, We need tons of people flooding into the United States. We ought to be welcoming with open arms the Ukrainians, the Russians who want to escape Russia 
as well as uh, the people from Central America and South America and elsewhere who have been trying to get into the United States and do have legitimate claims. Congress has refused to deal with immigration reform. And because of that, we have no reasonable way right now uh, to process people. But the fact that we may have to bring uh, people in and give them at least a temporary permission to stay here and to work uh, could be the exactly the medicine that the economy needs. All right. Well, we're going to talk a little bit more, actually, about the whole immigration topic. And before we do that, I want to ask Noah a few more questions about inflation. And we're going to do that right after this short message. People say puffiness and bags under the eyes are the hardest things to get rid of. Until now, introducing Genucel Plant Stem Cell Therapy. Some studies show that plant stem cell therapy could help target eye puffiness and bags. Due to new technology, Genucel is an incredibly powerful natural serum. And with its instant effects, it's guaranteed to show results in as little as 12 hours or your money back. That's right. Some users saw results in only 12 hours with dramatic improvement in two weeks. I have to say, I've been using this product now for about a month. And though I might have been a little skeptical in the beginning, I don't know. There's some kind of witchcraft or something that they have because it makes the skin around your eyes, you know, which is a little bit crepey or a little, you know, not as firm as it might be. It, it makes it feel tighter and you see a difference as you continue to use it. It's quite amazing. GenCell contains eight extra ingredients and uses plant stem cell technology to help get longer lasting and brilliant results. Go to genucel.com slash beg to differ right now to try it risk-free. You could say goodbye to puffiness and bags today. Order right now with our special code beg to differ to get an instant 10% off your order. Genucel promises the best skincare, the best results, or your money back. Go to genucel.com slash beg to differ. Genucel.com slash beg to differ. Okay, Noah, I, I'm wondering um, if you share Larry Summers's critique of the Fed. He's written very uh, strongly uh, that, shall we say, he's been vociferous in his denunciation of the policies of the Fed, saying that there's absolutely no way that they can get a handle on this unless interest rates exceed the rate of inflation. And we're nowhere close to that. And so I'm wondering how you view his uh, analysis and further uh, whether you think that the central bank in general has been given too many tasks, including things like fighting climate change, which was never its core function. Well, so in terms of the heuristic that interest rates should exceed the rate of inflation, I would note that that never actually happened in the, in the 70s and during the Volcker era. There was like one month, I think, when interest rates rose to the same level as inflation. And that was kind of an accident because inflation was sort of on its way down and uh, and they sort of didn't see it coming. But, but Volcker's hikes did not raise interest rates that high. And so I think that basically, you know, Larry Summers is trying to dish out a lot of hawkish talk so that people know that that economists are serious, that the establishment is serious about containing inflation. 
Um, I think that the more, you know, Larry Summers has turned himself into a byword, a code word for hawkish on inflation. And that's very intentional. So if anyone ever mentions his name, it means interest rate hikes at this point. And, uh, and you know, of course, I don't even know who did that in the last uh, round. I don't even remember. Maybe Marty Feldstein. I wasn't alive. But we're all supposed to know about things that happened before we were born, though. Well, no, yes, you, you will agree you, with that. You have to really read the news a lot to know that one. It's like, I, you know, I, I know the, I know all the econ papers that have been written about that era, but I don't know the news of, of communication that the Fed actually made during right. the Volcker era. Um, there are historians who do know this. But anyway, so I guess the point is that Larry Summers is trying to amp up the hawkishness so people take it seriously. I think that is a good thing to do. But I think that with inflation expectations still basically contained, there's no reason to Volcker the economy at this point. Um, if inflation expectations rise consistently above the rate of inflation and stay there for years, as you know, we didn't have the same markets that could gauge inflation expectations back in the 70s, but it's pretty clear that this is what was happening. People just decided that inflation was a fact of life. It's never going away. They were used to it. And that is why the Fed is like, okay, this is going on too long. People, you know, inflation expectations are now baked in. It's time to drop the hammer and drive them back down. And they did. And we got 30 years of, of low inflation. And so they will do that again. But the question is when, and the issue is that it will cause, you know, a few years of recession. It'll cause three years of recession in America. It, it will not be fun. You know, we'll have another rust belt somewhere. Like it will be, mm -hmm. it will be dramatically bad. The only reason we do that is because, you know, if we see an unending landscape of high inflations are sort of stretching into the far horizon, it's not a question of whether, but when we're going to have to do this. At that point, you just say, get it over with, endure the pain and drop the hammer. But with inflation now switching from one factor to another, you know, switching from stimulus spending and supply chain snarls to food and energy disruptions from a war, I think that they're definitely going to let it go a couple more years before they drop the hammer. Or, you know, if inflation gets really, really bad, you know, if inflation rises to like 15% or something, and even if expectations don't reflect it, at that point, the Fed starts to wonder, are these expectations just wrong? You know, are these markets just not actually reflecting true expectations? And in fact, inflation is accelerating because of expectations that aren't reflected in the market bets that these investors are making. And at that point, I think they clamp down and they drop the hammer. But I think we're not there yet. Hopefully this war will be over soon. The Ukrainians will win. The Russians will just retreat. And then we can get some food uh, back in there. And of course, you know, farmers have planted a lot of crops in response to high food prices and including in response to high futures prices from when Russia was executing its buildup on the borders of Ukraine. Everyone was like, oh, my God, food could get really expensive if they invade. And it did. But farmers were able to plant crops in time, especially uh, wheat and corn. And so that will bring down prices when that harvest comes in. In terms of food, in terms of energy, to be perfectly honest, gas sanctions on Russia could succeed because gas is difficult to reroute. Oil sanctions will simply not succeed. Russia will sell oil to China. Russia will sell oil to India. It will be fine. Oil prices haven't even risen that much. To be honest, they're not much higher than they were before the war. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of inflation in like gas and stuff like that. Uh, not as much inflation oil. And so I think 
what they're probably going to do is wait at least another six months to see how this war goes and then see what's happening to inflation. Okay. So that's interesting, especially the part about the farmers. That's so interesting. So we've talked a lot about what the Fed will do. Let let me ask you whether you think the political branches have have some tools here. Um, So one of the things that people have suggested is the president can cut tariffs. Um, he hasn't wanted to. He's been very tariff friendly, frankly. But when you cut tariffs, that's a tax on everything that we use, and uh, that could bring down prices. He can uh, relax Made in America rules. He loves Made in America rules, but they increase the price of everything too, or many things. What about a, an inflation impacts analysis for new regulations? That sort of thing. Right. Obviously, those are useful measures. The Made in America thing is not majorly impacting prices yet. It is something that might in the future. And, you know, I think that that's a misguided step from the Biden administration should be dropped. I think that they've done a number of things to increase regulatory costs that could be dropped. I don't think it's going to have a big effect on the headline rate of inflation, but it's probably something they should do. And if you look at the Carter administration, you see that they, in fact, did exactly this. Carter, not Reagan, was, in fact, the great deregulator of the U.S. economy. And this is something that few people know, that Reagan did relatively little deregulation, but one reason is because that Carter had already done a lot of it. And the reason Carter did it was squarely because of inflation, is because of the need to bring costs down. So I do think that- Starting you know, with the trucking industry. Starting with the trucking industry. Trucks, energy. Yeah, basically, energy and transportation were the big things that Carter deregulated. And I think that if you see a big Republican victory in the midterms, as I think we are headed for, then I think that Biden will realize what a liability this is and start just pushing any lever, pushing any button he can to bring down inflation by the time of the 2024 presidential election. And I think that it will have a modest effect. And I think that that will be good. Although, you know, it may be a little bad for climate change, but whatever. Uh, I think overall that will be a good thing. Biden will do it. And then I think that between that stuff and more importantly, the end of the war and the working out of supply chain snarls, the ending of big fiscal stimulus spending and Fed stimulus, et cetera, et cetera, all these things, these will combine to put downward pressure on inflation in the second part of Biden's term. It's just a question of how fast. All right. And with that, we will now turn to our next topic that Linda mentioned, and that is the immigration question, which is important to both of the topics today. And we're going to discuss that at length in our next segment. But before we do that, we just have a word from a sponsor. This episode of Beg to Differ is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show, which features in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds, like Charles Koch and Neil deGrasse Tyson. Every Friday, Jordan also releases a Feedback Friday episode to respond to listener questions, covering everything from conventional problems like leaving a dream job to doozies like helping someone escape an abusive relationship. You can also hear the latest news about Russia featuring a heavy-hitting interview with Garry Kasparov and his experiences with authoritarian governments, and that's just the beginning. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. 
So, Linda, you set us up very nicely here, um, but I want to turn now to Damon because this topic is one that causes real angst in the Biden White House, for, if we can believe the reports. They're very worried about a surge at the border and uh, what that will portend. They're very worried about how Fox News and other right-wing outfits will portray the issue. And so they are very, very scared, I would say, of relaxing immigration restrictions. But at the very moment that you think, well, Democrats really aren't handling this very well, why don't they have better messaging, along come the Republicans to show <laughs> that anything that you hoped was going to be serious about dealing with this issue is is kind of hopeless in our current environment. And I refer you to the governor of Texas, um, who has done two things this week that are just such jackassery. Um, the first being taking people who came to the border illegally in Texas and bussing them to Washington, D.C. and dropping them off right just in front of the Fox Bureau, by the way. And the other has been to halt truck traffic at the border with these spurious inspections that has um, dropped traffic at some of these border crossings by some 60%. And uh, as even his own Texas Agriculture Minister uh, Commissioner said, he said, such a misguided program is going to quickly lead to $2 lemons and $5 avocados. Yeah, I mean, we, we live in the time of uh, Republican demagogues. And really, I think other than, you know, the master himself, Donald Trump, the real uh, most talented uh, guy in this category has to be known as Ron DeSantis, the the uh, governor of Florida. And then you have Greg Abbott, who is kind of like the, the mini me version of, of Ron DeSantis, yeah. who's like constantly running around looking for occasions to, to do stunts, uh, that will get him in the headlines and, uh, gain a big following and applause on Fox and, uh, talk radio. And it always seems like he's trying like 50% too hard and, uh, looks a little bit ridiculous. No. At another level, I think it's all ridiculous. But I can tell yeah. when when DeSantis kind of hits it on the head, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's going to go viral on the right. Absolutely. Whereas Abbott, I half the time I scratch my head. I'm like, what are you trying to do here? Like, you think this looks like a great move, like, you know, getting buses and putting these people on a bus and sending them <sighs> to Washington? Like, is that good use of taxpayer dollars there? You're like, yeah, I don't know. It just doesn't make any sense. And it is dehumanizing. Well, of course it is. It's just you know, treating them just, as like cattle that can be manipulated yeah. in the spotlight. Yeah. It's just ridiculous. But, I, you know, it, to, to back away to a little bit more of a, a serious level of analysis, I do think that, that the immigration issue is something the Biden people are rightly worried about. One way of, we talked about this last week on the podcast, that what we were trying to understand, you know, why, why is Biden floundering? Why is he stuck in the low 40s for approval? And, you know, the list of reasons is long. Uh, you know, I think Bill suggested it's mainly inflation. And I agree that certainly over the last several months, that's probably the main factor. But it's also true, as I noted last week, this all started, he began to go over the cliff with 
the sort of sloppy, bungled mess of the Afghanistan withdrawal in mid-August. You can trace the moment at which he went underwater in the polls to almost the precise day that uh, the Taliban took over the country. Uh, and that's not so much, I think, because the American people are like blaming him for Afghanistan and, and, and are still angry with him about that specific issue. It's that the news stories that have been dominating the news ever since then are a kind of of a chief executive, the the, uh, the head of the executive branch, who seems a little overmatched, a little bit overwhelmed by events, sort of reacting to things in a way that looks a little bit like flailing. Some of that is foreign policy. I mean, I, I stop at no one and applauding the way Biden has handled uh, the Russia-Ukraine issue uh, in a way that it comes as close as I can imagine to hitting it kind of on the, you know, the nail on the head. You know, I have criticisms, but they're pretty minor. I think he's done well. But yet the world looks much messier now than it did a year ago. And it's happening on Biden's watch. And that kind of thing does matter. The in inflation and the kind of haphazard response to it that we were just discussing is part of it. But given that context, and then of course, you know, that COVID keeps lingering on, he keeps pronouncing that it's over and then it's and then it isn't because we have a new variant or a subvariant, and uh, you know new hits come. You know, one day he says uh, we have to let more immigrants in on the border because I can no longer say we can't because the pandemic is over. And the next day he says we're going to keep the mask mandate on airplanes for another two weeks because the pandemic isn't over, and we're going to continue to extend the moratorium on student loan payments. Yes, exactly, because right? no one yeah. can afford to pay their right. uh, their student loans. I mean, yeah. so you, it, there is a kind of flailing about it. And so why they're so worried about immigration is if uh, dropping uh, the restrictions that have been in place because of the pandemic leads there to be, uh, you know, another surge on the border and this becomes a big news story, it looks again like the Biden administration is being overwhelmed by events. It isn't controlling them. It doesn't know what to do to stop these events from happening. And so, uh, you know, I think I'm going to actually close my little uh, tirade right now by perhaps setting up Noah to uh, to make a comment in a few minutes about this issue that um, I saw that he tweeted a little uh, while ago earlier this week, uh, something showing a poll. I think it was a Pew poll showing that like roughly like, you know, the support for increasing immigration has never been higher. And that's true. It's in the low 30s that support that. And then about another third of the country is in favor of pretty much keeping it the way it is. So you put that together and it looks like, wow, two thirds of the country either wants the same or more immigration. That sounds great. But of course, what the poll also is showing, looked at uh, with your head slightly tilted the other direction, is that the country is completely divided on this issue. And you could just as easily say, oh, half the country wants there to be less immigration and another third wants it to stay the same. That's two thirds that want it to keep the way it is or less. And that's a situation that explains why we're in this mess and why Congress never solves it, because 
you have a third of the country who wants more, a third of the country that wants less, and the third thinks it's just right. That's a recipe for, uh, you know, gridlock uh, at its worst. Uh, and it is also the case, I think, that the third who want it to be less are by far the most motivated of those categories. And so they make the most noise and they use their media platforms to, uh, to really broadcast that noise as loudly as possible across the political system. So, uh, yeah, it's it's a tough situation for Biden, and uh, my heart goes out to the man. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we will invite everyone to comment on that after just a few more messages. Well, the weather's getting warmer, and I am excited because this means it is time for grilling steaks, Omaha steaks, outside letting my husband do the cooking. He's good at grilling. Maybe not so much at other things, but he's really good at grilling. And especially when you have the best possible meat that I always like rare. Some people think that I order it mooing. That's not true, but I do love my Omaha steaks. And they make it so easy to stock up on all your favorites. Visit omahasteaks.com and enter beg to differ into the search bar and order the Omaha Steaks sampler today. You'll save over 50%. Plus, you'll get 12 Omaha Steak Burgers free with your order. This package has it all, from the mouth-watering butcher cut filet mignon to the delicious caramel apple tartlets. Every order is backed by their 100% satisfaction guarantee to deliver perfection in every single bite, every single time. Visit omahasteaks.com, type keyword beg to differ in the search bar and order today. There's a reason why Omaha Steaks has been the leader of gourmet steaks and food for over a century. No one, and I mean no one, comes close to matching the flavor tenderness, and value of Omaha Steaks. Fifth generation owned and operated, they invented meat delivery and are still the very best. You can trust Omaha Steaks to deliver quality worthy of their name. Visit omahasteaks.com, keyword beg to differ, and order the Omaha Sampler today. Bill Galston, I have a sense that Part of the issue is that so often, I mean, there are people in this country, obviously, a fair number, who for a whole series of reasons, cultural, religious, ethnic, racial, whatever, are really hostile to immigrants, period. Um, there are a lot of people who are not hostile, but who just have not um, seen the issue presented in the right way. So I, I'm going to present to you my view that... Um, that the Democrats frequently make a mistake when they discuss immigration because they so often frame it as a social justice matter that, you know, we have to do right by these people who want to come here. And while, of course, you know, we have to treat everybody humanely who wants to come here, um, unlike what the Trump administration did, um, Still, you know, it seems to me it's far better politically to argue all of the benefits that immigrants bring to us, that, that we need them and that we want them and, and why we should. And what do you think? Uh, I beg to agree. <laughs> <laughs> and I've been making this case for decades, Mona. 
You yeah. know, I've worked on this issue for a very long time. I helped to convene a bipartisan blue ribbon committee on the subject, commission, I should say. And it is very clear uh, that there is a public consensus for an immigration policy that is, first of all, balanced between the well-being of immigrants and the requirements of border security, and secondly, is focused on the gains uh, that a robust a stream of immigrants can bring to this country. And as I think I've said before, there was exactly such a reform effort now nine years ago, famous Gang of Eight in the Senate, mm -hmm. which produced just the kind of bill I'm talking about, which got the support of all 54 Democrats and 14 Republicans on this highly controversial issue. And if John Boehner, then Speaker of the House, had had the guts to bring it to the floor of the House, it would have passed and we would be in a very different place. Uh, so, uh, and if you look uh, to the nation to our, our north, Canada, they demonstrated that an immigration reform along the lines that I just recommended moved the Canadian public from a stance of real displeasure with immigration. Uh, within a decade, Canadians had turned around, instead of being two to one against immigration, they were two to one for it, and they've been there ever since. And the Canadians are very direct about saying that the flow of immigration, the kinds of immigrants who are let in, reflects the national interests of the country and is perfectly compatible with robust uh, flows of immigration and a more humane policy on refugees and asylum seekers than we've been able to maintain in this country. But having said all of this, uh, I can't let the Biden administration off the hook on this issue, even to the extent that Damon did in his closing remarks. Last Sunday, there was a front page New York Times story, an inside story, very well sourced by the standards of inside story, that told a sorry tale of bickering on immigration inside the Biden administration that the president did not resolve, that the chief of staff did not resolve, and that continues to this day. And the article starts out with the president in a meeting where the staff is bickering over immigration policy. This is spring of last year. Uh, and he finally explodes and asks, who do I have to fire to fix this problem? You know, there's a famous story from the Kennedy administration where there's been some leak and Kennedy gives Pierre Salinger 48 hours to find out the source of the leak. And hour 47 and 59 minutes, Salinger slinks into the office and you know, shuffles his feet and says, uh, Mr. President, I've found the source of the leak. And the president asks, well, who was it? I want to fire him. Uh, <clears throat> you can't do that, sir. It was you. Uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, I think that the problem on immigration starts at the top. The president wants a policy that resolves both the substance of the problem and the politics of the problem in a painless way, and there is no such policy. He has to make a choice about how to proceed in this area. The choice is going to disappoint some of his supporters, whatever he does, and, uh, but he has to bite the bullet on this because right now, a stance of no policy 
policy confusion is leading to the worst of all possible outcomes, both in policy terms and in political terms. And it's his responsibility to fix this problem. Um, So, Linda, I see you have your hand up. If you have a short point, I'll ask you to make it now. Otherwise, I will come back to you after I go to Noah. Okay. Uh, The short point I was going to make was that Bill mentioned the 2013 uh, bill that passed the Senate but failed to be called up for a vote in the House. The reason it wasn't called up for a vote in the House was in part because there was a huge flood of young uh, unaccompanied minors um, who showed up at the border, and this fueled all of the anti-immigrant backlash uh, that we saw and uh, basically uh, killed uh, immigration reform that year. There was just no way it was going to happen uh, when you saw that that huge group of, of young unaccompanied minors. Okay, thank you for that. Now, Noah, you know, when you look at the polling on this question, um, you see that people, even yeah, you know, with, with the exception of some hardcore people on the on the far right, people are not hostile to immigration, but they are extremely intolerant of chaos. They hate to see the border overrun. It really makes them insecure. It gives them a feeling of lack of leadership, and I. Submit that the Democrats can make this a winning issue for themselves if they combine a sense of order at the border. That is, we cannot have people, you know, just just overrunning borders. That cannot be tolerated. But we do need a far better and more orderly system of legal entry. And by the way, the Biden administration on this. I'm sorry, people who love Biden. He's getting a lot of guff from us today. But look. I mean, he has not uh, even taken steps, for example, to reduce the paperwork that the Trump administration purposely put into the code to discourage legal immigration. Okay. And that's something that the Biden administration could do easily and they haven't done it. And so even the, you know, the, the options for getting here legally and uh, Linda, I'd like to hear you on this later, um, you know, are, are not there. I don't know. I mean, I think that Biden has done things to ease legal immigration. You know, a lot of a lot of the reduction immigration from Trump was not explicit policies. It was simply gutting the um, Citizenship and Immigration Services. Okay. Um, and so gutting that department was really the biggest thing. And Stephen Miller was personally responsible for that. Biden has been putting it back together. Immigration is, you know, legal immigration is rebounding. You know, Biden has raised the refugee cap. You know, we're not getting the refugees yet, um, but we obviously will be getting them soon. But refugees are always a relatively small portion of immigration. Um, family-based immigration, employment-based immigration, which is the skills-based sort of immigration, those are both rebounding, you know, pretty robustly. So Biden actually has done a lot on the legal immigration front. What he hasn't done is a border security crackdown because it looks like Trump. And so we've, we've had this very divisive thing where, yes, people don't like chaos at the border. They're mad about that. And then when you do stuff to try to crack down, everyone says, oh, you're Trump, you're building the wall, you're brutalizing these poor people, blah, blah, blah. And especially the pressure is big on Democrats because of the activist base. You know, the activist base uh, the right wingers have not been inaccurate when they've said that the activist base wants de facto open borders, because while they say, oh, we're not for open borders, they're actually in practice against any concrete method of border enforcement that you might propose. So this makes it very hard to do the classic sort of deal, which was expanded legal immigration in exchange for harsher border enforcement. 
which is basically the deal we got all the way up until 2013 and would have gotten it again had we made that deal. And at that point, it was the right that sank that deal. It was Republicans who said, you know what, we don't want this deal even we're not going to take more legal immigration in exchange for border enforcement, because at that point, you could already see the ethno-nationalism starting to creep back into the mainstream GOP with the rise of Santorum and people like that. And that is why that deal was killed. Uh, you had a few Democrats who opposed it. It was primarily Republicans. And then after that, you know, Trump came in and that idea of that kind of deal was dead. And now immigration has become a culture war on the right, such that it's this thing of we're losing our civilization, we're being replaced and blah, blah, blah. You know, they might not say that explicitly, uh, you know, on TV all the time, but that's the narrative that a large portion of the Republicans, a large portion of the right have bought into this idea of replacement, of a great replacement. You know, we're being replaced. And of course, what they're really anxious about, I think, this is me going out on a limb here. I think what they're really anxious about is cultural change, which is primarily driven by the internet, not by racial diversity, not by immigration at all, but by, uh, you know, because the immigrants coming in are actually pretty conservative compared to the people who, you know, who are marching in, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter marches, which is what I think the conservatives are really scared of. And so I think that they're displacing their fear of social change, and which is really driven by the internet, on to immigrants and thinking, well, at least this is one thing we can control. At least this is one thing we can stop. Uh, and they're probably right about that. They they have made some headway in, like Biden has done some stuff to restore immigration, but they've made some headway. You know, we didn't take a whole bunch of Afghan refugees. And one reason is because we didn't want to stir up the right. It's because the idea that there would be, you know, if any Afghan refugees commit any crimes, there would be mass panic, blah, blah, blah. And by then, the way, though, you yeah. know, Republicans were actually pretty, you know, gung ho to accept Afghan refugees, too, which is ironic. But anyway, a few were. Yeah, that's yeah. right. No, but quite I, a few. I mean, the, by polling, I mean. Oh, by polling yeah. out. But yeah. uh, people are still scared of that Trumpist right. They're scared of sort of resurrecting that monster of, of right-wing enthusiasm that was anti-immigration stuff. And so unfortunately, I think that means that although Biden can definitely do good stuff at the margins and has been doing good stuff at the margins, we are in a time that's – we're not in a an immigration halt like we did after 1924 – but we are in an immigration slowdown, and I think we're going to be in that for several years, and that's unfortunate. It's bad for our country for all the reasons you've already specified, but I think that's where we are. And in one thing I didn't specify, which is our birth rate is declining alarmingly as well. So we really are in trouble without right. without immigrants. Yeah, right. yeah. We need immigrants um, to take care of the old people, and we're yes. just not getting that. Yes. Um, Linda, I wonder if you could just say a word about assimilation, because one of the big worries about by the right wingers is, you know, as Noah was saying, the great replacement thing. Well, that's, that's a fringe fear, but maybe not that fringe. But there's also this sense that you, you hear from the right that, you know, these immigrants are different. These immigrants aren't learning English. These immigrants aren't, you know, becoming part of our society. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, of course, I've been talking about this for, well, I don't know, going on 50 years now. Yes, I know. <laughs> it's, uh, uh, it is a uh, recurring theme in, in my my writing and all of my work. Um, this, by the way, is not a new fear. 
This is a fear that has accompanied every great wave of immigration going back to the beginning of our nation. And we had the same kind of fears uh, in the middle of the 19th century about Germans and Scandinavians coming in, that they were going to somehow remain separate. And the Germans, by the way, did try to remain separate. They they wanted their own state. They um, had proposals to try to create the uh, state of Wisconsin as a German-speaking uh, German living uh, state with lots of uh, German institutions, including uh, their various uh, school systems. Uh, There were German public schools um, in which German was the main language of instruction. So we've had this uh, in the past. We've had the fear of the people who are here, who may have gotten uh, here just maybe, you know, 50 years earlier, uh, their ancestors or their grandparents, worrying about the people who were coming at the present time. And that has um, certainly not changed during the 20th and 21st century, when so many people were coming not from Europe, but from Latin America. But the good news is that all studies that have carefully looked at the assimilation of immigrants, even those uh, from Mexico and Central America and elsewhere in Latin America, many of whom came with very low education and low uh, working skills, they showed that within a generation, those uh, immigrants themselves and certainly their children had uh, assimilated into the American mainstream. The immigrants move up the education ladder. Uh, Their children, particularly those who were schooled in the United States, all learn English. They become fluent in English. And uh, even among the second generation, um, for those children who are schooled here in the U.S., English becomes their preferred language. Uh, It is the language they prefer to get their news in, their entertainment in, and it is the language they use most often uh, in in the workplace and, and in the public square. So immigrants are assimilating. Hispanic immigrants and Asian immigrants who comprise the two largest groups of immigrants in the late 20th century and early 21st century um, have uh, assimilated not just as fast as the European immigrants who came in the early 20th century. They've assimilated in many ways faster. So we should quit worrying about that. The problem is that Uh, some of the advocates of immigrants were actually the worst offenders in terms of stirring up this fear. Um, Back during the 1980s, for example, bilingual education was almost universal in uh, areas where there were large Spanish-speaking populations, Uh, children who were coming into school, many of whom could speak some English, but uh, Spanish may have been their first language, were routinely put into classrooms where they were taught, not for a few weeks or a few months, but for years in their native language. And that caused a, a tremendous backlash. In fact, it only ended when immigrant parents in the city of Los Angeles decided to engage in protests and uh, an initiative was actually passed in the state of California saying that English immersion would be the preferred method. Uh, but, you know, bilingual education is not even controversial anymore because it basically doesn't exist. We've uh, moved to the sensible notion that if you want to learn a new language, that you need to be taught in that language as quickly as possible. So, you know, that should not concern uh, people. But nonetheless, um, the fact that um, so many on the left uh, do, as, as you've suggested uh, earlier, promote the idea of 
doing what uh, they think immigrants want rather than doing what is in the best interests of uh, the country in terms of immigration policy has not been helpful. Uh, and when I talk about immigration, I always, like Bill, try to talk about a sensible immigration policy that will welcome people into the country who will benefit this country. Not only uh, benefit the country, but in doing so, they benefit themselves. And it is unfortunate that we've never been willing to look at massive changes in our immigration policy, which would look more to the skills of the immigrants who are coming. And I don't mean that we're only going to let in computer engineers and mathematicians and scientists, because some of the skills that we lack are skills you know, to do service jobs, uh, to clean buildings, to work in chicken processing plants, to uh, help harvest uh, our fruits and vegetables. But we could have a system that was much more based uh, on looking at what the economic needs of this country was. And I think if we were to do that, and we were to do it in a generous fashion, we could uh, assimilate and bring in well over 1.3 million uh, immigrants a year. Right now, uh, we make a permanent residence of about a million people a year, but many of those who get that permanent residence status have been in the United States and they're simply adjusting their status from a temporary uh, to a permanent status, so they're not all newcomers. We need an influx of newcomers. Uh, and the best way to do it, of course, is to pass immigration reform, but if we're not going to pass immigration reform, the sort of benign uh, looking away at um, what happens when people come in illegally and end up working um, has, in fact, I think, benefited us in the past. And we may see it again in the future. All right. Thank you. And with that, we will turn to our final segment, our highlight or low light of the week. Bill Galston, I will call on you first. Well, uh, I recently read one of the most brilliant essays that I've encountered in a long time. It is by the renowned former editor of the back half of the New Republic, when it was a good magazine, Leon Wieseltier. And the title of the piece is Christianism. And it's an effort to look at broadly speaking, conservative Christian movements through the same lens that we look at, for example, conservative Islamic movements, the kinds that we call Islamist. Uh, Leon focuses in particular on the Catholic intellectuals who are preaching what they call integralism, which means in plain English, abolishing the distinction between church and state, uh, that is, uh, one of the cornerstones of our Constitution, and in prose of really <laughs> remarkable verve and brilliance, uh, Leon shows exactly what is wrong and dangerous about that way of thinking and that way of conceiving of what the core of an American conservatism should be. And where was this published? Where was this published? It is in something called Liberty's Journal, which I infer from the masthead, Leon and a few others helped found a couple of years ago. It is a remarkably interesting publication, even if I suspect its circulation right now is limited. 
Well, great. We'll, um, we'll put a link in the show notes. Thank you. Damon Linker. Uh, well, I just want to begin by seconding uh, Bill's choice. That essay is fantastic. It's also long and uh, hard work, but worth every bit of effort. It really is a fantastic uh, statement. Probably the best thing I've seen in defense of liberalism in, in at least several months. It's really great. So I uh, very much second that. My own selection is actually uh, pointing toward uh, some events going on in the world rather than something that I've read this week, although I will have one reading selection to suggest at the end of my plug. Um, that's to encourage listeners to really pay attention to what is happening in France. The, the French electoral system for the presidency usually involves two rounds because they have a kind of open election, which they held last Sunday in the country where uh, all the uh, candidates run and then the top two choices, if none of them get above 50 percent, uh, join together and, and have a, a runoff two weeks later. So that uh, runoff is going to be held on the 24th of April. And uh, as you probably have heard from the news, uh, the top two finishers were uh, Emmanuel Macron, the moderate uh, centrist president, incumbent, who's been president since 2017, and Marine Le Pen, uh, who is uh, a far-right candidate who's been around for a long time. Her father uh, uh, founded uh, the the party that she is now leading with a slightly different name. It used to be called the National Front. Now it's called National Rally. And uh, they're, they're facing each other soon. And this is, a, I think, a really big deal. Like, Probably the biggest deal of its kind since the two big events of 2016, the Brexit vote and the Trump election. Now, we have every reason to think that in the end, Macron will will win this. He's leading in every poll I've seen, but it is far closer than it ought to be. When they last, this is actually a rerun of the last election from 2017. And in the end, Macron won that over Le Pen 66 to 33, which is a total wipeout. The latest polls I've been seeing are showing uh, Macron at about 53.5 and Le Pen at 46.5. And that's with about a week and a half to go before the final vote. Now, that would be a, a decisive win for Macron if he pulls it off. But it is, again, much closer than we should hope. And the thing that really led me to want to bring this up for our, our listeners as my selection today is that... Uh, earlier this week, Le Pen was asked about foreign policy, and she declared that if she becomes French president, France will quit NATO's integrated military command and seek a strategic rapprochement with Russia. So uh, there's a lot at stake here, and it's with that in so mind. So much for presenting herself as more of a moderate I know, which she's I mean, been my, doing in the last couple of years. As soon as, I, as soon as I heard that, I was like, that's what she thinks is going to push her over the edge? But you never know. I mean, the number yeah. three uh, in the election uh, in the first round was uh, Melchthon, who's a far-left uh, candidate who's been also been around for a long time. And he's also in favor of kind of withdrawing from 
from NATO and drawing closer to to Russia. So there is clearly a significant faction of the French electorate that finds this message appealing, and that should be alarming to everyone listening to this podcast. And with that in mind, my my plug for something to read on this, I actually think this is being undercovered, frankly, in the news. I assume this will will not be true next week as we approach the final uh, vote in the second round. But this is a, a little unseemly to plug uh, Jonathan Last, who's uh, head of the bulwark, but I will because his <laughs> newsletter item on uh, April 14th uh, titled uh, Le Pen and Trump Could Succeed Where the Russian Army Failed. Uh, this is in reference uh, to breaking NATO, not from the outside, as Putin has been trying to do in Ukraine, but from the inside by potentially w- winning over uh, the control of some of the most important countries within NATO. So I recommend that. Uh, I think to read the whole thing, you have to subscribe to Bulwark Plus, and I'd urge you to do that. So that's my plug. Well, thank you for that. (laughs) All right. Uh, Linda. Well, I'm going to pick up a little bit uh, on what uh, Bill recommended. It's not the same article. Uh, It's not uh, certainly by Leon Wieseltier. It's by Ron Radosh, and the article is called Point of Compact, uh, and it appears in Quillette. Uh, and it is about some of the same people that uh, Weaseltier is writing about, one of them being Saurabh uh, Amari, I assume. Um, Ron's piece opens with a quip by the late uh, literary critic and social democrat Irving Howe, who once said that radicals, uh, when they fail to build a movement, start a magazine. Uh, <laughs> Leon made be one of those as well. Uh, But uh, the magazine that Ron is writing about is a magazine called Compact. And it is a very strange piece. So I guess, you know, this recommendation of mine is sort of a a low uh, recommendation. Uh, This new Compact uh, magazine uh, hopes to join a group of people who are shaped by our desire for a strong social democratic state that defends community, local, national, familial, and religious against a libertine left and a libertarian right. Well, why am I recommending it? I'm recommending it because I, like um, some of our listeners, uh, like to keep track of people with whom I disagree. And I guess what Compact Magazine is doing is putting both people on the left and people on the right together in one place so that I can read it uh, and not have to spend um, all that much time uh, looking up uh, what people on the left and the right say. So that's my recommendation for the week. All right. Uh, this was also mentioned uh, last week or the week before by Damon. So uh, oh. <laughs> well, yeah, we're, we're I keeping, tabs on, uh, <laughs> keeping tabs on them. All right. Thank you. Okay. Noah Smith, highlight or low light or both? The highlight of the week has just been Ukrainians uh, kicking Russian butt. Um, obviously, <laughs> this is not you know something to jump for joy and jubilation with because many Ukrainians are getting tortured and murdered and horribly killed. Uh, by an unprovoked invasion. So it's it's not, you know, like, ha, 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 Russians die, whatever. Um, but it's it's extremely heartening because it shows that, you know, authoritarian sort of totalitarian states in the modern era are less effective than many had believed. Uh, people thought, oh, Russia, you know, they, they've got this strong leader who, who, you know, can get things done with force of personal will. They, you know, they've got this very powerful modernized army. They can 
Ukraine is corrupt and, you know, because it's democratic, it's weak and divided and blah, blah, blah. And there was this authoritarianism narrative very similar to what we saw in the 1930s. Ukraine has just blown that narrative out of the water in the process of expelling much of the Russian army from their territory and defending themselves successfully with Western help. The West is more united and purposeful, looks more effective than it has been in recent memory, while uh, suddenly Russia looks like a colossus with feet of clay. That makes me happy. Uh, couldn't agree more. And by the way, earlier when we were discussing on the same theme, you know, the, the authoritarians don't do things as well as their admirers imagine, um, we forgot to say about China that one of the reasons that they're in such desperate straits vis-a-vis COVID right now is that the vaccines that they developed didn't work very well. They hardly worked at all. And so, you know, the uh, people should bear that in mind, the authoritarianism you know, it, it's great. It, it says, oh, I'll take away your liberty. I'll take away your dignity. And in return, I will give you efficiency and uh, and power. And both of those examples show that they don't, you don't get anything in return for giving up your liberty and your dignity. You don't get power. You don't get efficiency. You don't get, uh, you don't get a better society. Right. You just get stomped on. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Um, I would like to mention as my highlight a piece that appeared in The Atlantic by Jonathan Haidt, uh, why the past 10 years of American life have been uniquely stupid. Um, yeah, I grabbed that headline, grabbed me. I think this is a, a down payment on a, a book that Jonathan Haidt is preparing. And uh, it's it's about the influence. It's about many things, but m- this, uh, this excerpt is about the um, influence of social media on our lives the last uh, 10 years. And he makes a very persuasive case. I mean, uh, Damon used the term overdetermined uh, a few minutes ago. And, you know, surely our current troubles are overdetermined. There are many factors going on. But Height rather makes a very um, persuasive case that the, the like and share buttons on Facebook and Twitter um, have um, have had a really corrupting effect on many, many aspects of our society. And um, he, he closes out this essay by calling for some reforms. Um, and uh, one of them I also happen to have written about this week, namely ranked choice voting, which I've become more and more enthusiastic about. Um, he says, this is quoting him, reform should reduce the outside influence of angry extremists and make legislators more responsive to the average voter in their district. One example of such a reform is to end closed party primaries, replacing them with a single nonpartisan open primary from which the top several candidates advance to a general election that also uses ranked choice voting. So hooray for that. Um, And the whole essay is really uh, very, very worthwhile and uh, full of insights. And uh, I think he's he's really put his finger on on some of the the causes of some of the dysfunction that we're experiencing. All right. I want to thank Noah Smith. I want to thank our listeners. Our producer is Katie Cooper and our sound engineer was Joe Armstrong. Want to thank both of them. 
We will welcome your comments and suggestions. And I got some music criticism this week from one uh, from one listener, which I appreciated. Um, he missed the Mazorski, which I completely understand. Um, but uh, anyway, we uh, we enjoy hearing from you, and we will return next week as every week. Mm-hmm.